Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Solver with the American Journal of Managed Care, and today we're going to talk about healthcare quality. And I have exactly the right person to talk to about that. Um, Dr. Elizabeth McGlynn, we're going to call her Beth, um, is the Vice President for Kaiser Permanente Research. And she's also, and I'm very intrigued by this, uh, the Interim Senior Associate Dean for Research and Scholarship at the brand new Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine. I'm so glad you picked Bernard's name to honor all the contributions that he made to Kaiser. She's also an internationally known expert on methods for evaluating the appropriateness and the quality of healthcare delivery. There's a whole industry out there of people who are trying to define, measure, improve um, quality. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And um, so I thought we'd start out with the first question. You know, there's a lot of consumers out there who think the quality is just fine. Um, in U.S. healthcare, even though those of us kind of on the on the other side of this who've worked in the quality arena, we don't believe it. The patients do. Why is it specifically that you are so worried about U.S. healthcare quality? So I think you're right. And actually, when I got involved in this area, part of the concern I had was that there was so little awareness of the quality deficits. And we thought it was important to try to raise awareness about the problem. And that's because if you don't think you have a problem, you certainly aren't going to spend any time or energy trying to solve the problem. The, and, and I think, you know, a simple sort of way of thinking about quality for me is that people are getting the right care at the right time every time. And in large part, I'd like consumers not to have to worry about that, to in fact trust their physicians and their health system and to have those of us who Um, our experts make sure that that's a well-placed trust, that they will in fact get the right care at the right time every time. Um, But I don't think we're there yet. And so I think this was an opportunity to remind people that for as much as we've been doing, we haven't completely solved the problem yet. Can you give me some examples of areas that you, you think are really glaring in terms of not having good quality? Well, I I give the example in the paper about control of hypertension. So we know that one of the leading causes of death is is heart disease, cardiovascular disease. Cancer and cardiovascular disease compete for the, you know, the number one and two ranking. And blood pressure control is a critical part of uh, both, you know, of, of reducing the likelihood that people will die from heart disease. And we know what to do. This isn't a new problem. The, the solutions are pretty clear. And we still fall quite short of um, not only controlling it, but even diagnosing it and treating it effectively. We know there are um, problems all the way uh, al- along the way. And so this is something that it isn't rocket science. It isn't brand new. The medications are pretty inexpensive. Um, So it it is something that we should be doing a better job of. I mean, other things include management of diabetes, uh, management of weight, um, you know, cancer screening. I mean, there's sort of all sorts of things that in prevention, in uh, treatment of acute problems, um, 
like what we're seeing with COVID today and in, um, in management of chronic disease where we know what to do and the execution, doing it reliably just doesn't happen. Well, you, you mentioned people um, and their relationships with their doctors. Mm -hmm. If I have a, I mean, most people believe that their doctor's good or they leave them if they can, if they're, whatever their insurance arrangements are, allow them to leave. Um, if I think I have a really good doctor, um, why isn't that enough? Well, and I'll say, I don't think this is about good or bad doctors. I mean, I'll just say, I really believe that doctors show up every day, doctors and actually health professionals broadly, show up every day to do the very best they can. And, they, and they're smart and they're dedicated. And we would be in deep trouble if they weren't those kinds of professionals. I mean, so the issue is that this is really complex and we have a system that in, in its essence hasn't changed much in the last century in terms of the way healthcare typically gets delivered. Um, but that's with an explosion of information, um, a, a big change in the nature of the healthcare problems that people face. Uh, but no real change in the way that we approach uh, healthcare delivery. So, and I, I often liken it to people um, showing up um, a little bit unannounced. I mean, you have a, an appointment, um, but the, it may not be entirely clear what the, the plan is. Um, there's no agenda for the meeting. And, and, the, and each individual is quite individual. And so all of the different things that you might need to do if I show up versus say my husband shows up in the office, they're very different. And it really strains the human mind to be able to do that on the fly without planning, without systems and reminders and algorithms. Um, it's, it's just, it, I think it really, in some ways it's remarkable we do as well as we do um, because we don't, we haven't invested much in the infrastructure and systems that can help those very good doctors be even more successful than they are today. Along that note, uh, you had a very interesting graph in your paper which compared performance on hypertension management of Kaiser Permanente with that of other managed care organizations and with that of the Wild West of kind of the completely unmanaged part of our healthcare system, which is still quite substantial. Could you describe that a little bit? Sure. So, I mean, what I took a look at was, um, you know, the, as you said, I'll, I'll start with um, from national data, how we're doing in um, high blood pressure control, which has, um, you know, not really gotten much above, say, 40% of uh, people, and that's people who we know have um, hypertension, um, and, and some of them are being treated and some of them aren't, but that it's, you know, it's about uh, 40%. Um, and, and, and there's been a little bit of an increase, but it's not, it's not very impressive. Um, the managed care um, groups generally, where you have some greater accountability, where we have been doing more routine measurement, um, and where I think there's been an impetus for people to try to um, improve things is, is up at, you know, more like 55%, kind of similar to what I found um, 
back in 2003. And then uh, KP, it currently is just above, you know, 80%. Um, and, and, and so what I think that demonstrates is, what do you get when you're, when you're working in not in systems? How do, how do just systems themselves help boost that? And then when you have a very deliberate program, which we've had in Kaiser Permanente, we took that on as a goal to control blood, uh, blood pressure. Um, we put registries in place. Um, we started providing feedback. Uh, we identified some effective treatments and algorithms to help guide physicians in treatment planning. We made uh, drop-in blood pressure checks free for patients. We um, gave nursing staff the ability to actively outreach with patients whose blood pressures weren't controlled to try to work with them. So we did a bunch of things. And, it, and so I think it shows what you get when you have no system, the bump you get from at least having a system, systems that are trying to pay attention. And then what happens if you have a sort of, um, sort of all in focus on trying to uh, deliver the very best care as, as reliably and routinely as possible. And, I, and I, I used it because I think it's a great illustration. I mean, it's a specific example, but I think there are lots of examples like that, that that tell us that it doesn't happen just because people have good intentions or people are professionals or people even have the knowledge. I don't think this is about knowledge. I think this is really about, do you have systems that help you get the job done? Well, I wanna come back to the systemness thing. So just by way of background, I spent my entire clinical career at Kaiser Permanente. I'm, I'm a big fan and a big believer in systems. And actually I was training when there was a lot of backlash for Kaiser because people said, well, I need to be my independent doctor and charge whatever I want and my quality is good and all that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, but we have moved away from that somewhat, but not entirely. But I want to come back to that at the end. I, th I thought what we would do now is if you could talk to us about the framework for evaluating quality. You write about it in your paper and you say there's three components, structure, we're just talking about that, that systemness, process and outcomes. Can you um, help the listeners understand what each of those are and how they contribute to overall quality? Sure. So I'll start with um, structure, which is um, really the people and institutions and financing arrangements that are the infrastructure by which healthcare gets delivered. So we often measure things like hospital beds per thousand or hundred thousand population, a physician, what's the physician supply, um, how many people have insurance in the community, um, we, in earlier work I did, um, we looked at the penetration of managed care. Would, you know, did it make a difference if there was um, more managed care in a, in a community? Um, the infrastructure can, can and, and what I argue in the paper, be broadened to consider um, some things related to the social determinants. And I think we'll talk about that a little later, I, you know, but, but classically, structure is the, the, the sort of uh, countable things about the infrastructure by which healthcare is delivered and, and some of the, the sort of financial flows that are, are there. Um, process are sort of the discrete elements of, of care delivery that you can 
identify as being consistent with the best evidence. So it's, it's things like the uh, quality of the diagnostic process, you know, are the right steps taken to make a diagnosis? What proportion of people get a flu vaccine or maybe in our, we hope not too distant future, a COVID vaccine? Cancer screening, it's things like the proportion of people who have been prescribed the right medications for a condition that they have. So it's those discrete elements of care. We have standardized measures for a lot of those processes. Yes. Don't we? Yes, we do. And, 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 they, and they reflect things that are uh, well established and uh, known often from clinical trials to be effective in diagnosing or treating disease. So they're, they're um, almost always they reflect areas of broad acceptance within the medical community and good scientific evidence. Um, and then um, the outcomes can be things like mortality rate, how many people are dying, um, you know, of the disease. Uh, a more refined version is dying prematurely. We all will die eventually, but there's this um, uh, concept of, of years of life lost to look at whether you died earlier than uh, you uh, might have from a condition. There are outcomes also include quality of life. How well are you able to function in everyday life? How much pain do you have? Are you able to do the things that um, you want to do? How much does having a, a healthcare problem interfere with your life? And then we talk also about intermediate outcomes. So in the paper, I use blood pressure control. That's considered an intermediate outcome. Um, but those are, so, you know, structure is basically, you know, the hardwired version of how we deliver care with people, uh, processes, the specific discrete events, and outcomes, what are the results that we get? Good, and I just want to have you clarify intermediate outcome. What you're, what you're trying to say is, you know, blood pressure is a measurement, and that's important, but it isn't what we're really worried about. We're really worried about heart attack and strokes. Right, and what we um, talk about, I think, a lot of times in quality is we'd rather not wait for people to die of heart attacks and strokes if we know there's something that we could look at along the way that's a good predictor of the probability that someone's going to die of a heart attack or stroke, and, and that if we do that well, we're pretty sure from previous studies that have been done, we'll see a reduction in heart attacks and strokes. And I should say that improvement that you saw in Kaiser Permanente in blood pressure control has come with a concomitant um, substantial reduction in heart attacks and strokes, much better than the country as a whole. The country as a whole has seen improvements there um, but uh, th these kinds of interventions have um, allowed us to decrease those rates even, even more. So I think I read, and you can tell me if this is still true, leaving COVID aside, that, um, that heart attacks are no longer the leading cause of death at, at Kaiser. Is that, is that still true? I think that's right. And actually what happens is, I think what we're beginning to see, I think this is true at Kaiser Permanente and other places, is that in the heart disease, in the cardiovascular realm, uh, the emerging concern is with heart failure. So we've done such a good job with heart attacks that now the cardiovascular disease of interest is uh, heart failure. Okay. Well, that's... <laughs> That's not a great substitute. Which is harder to deal with, frankly. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so we've, we've, we've talked about these components, but what I wanted to do now is to talk about something that you write about in the paper, which are these levers that can be pulled 
to drive quality improvement. And um, some of them are measurement, incentives, we're gonna talk about incentives, mm -hmm. and then addressing social factors, which you mentioned already are the social determinants of health. Can you um, talk a little bit about each one of those? Sure, so um, we'll start with measurement, um, which um, is a topic that sometimes is uh, gets people quite exercised. But you know, I'll say that you can't improve something if you don't know what your performance is. And so the essence of measurement, I think, is it has a couple of features. One is you get a clear picture on how well you're doing, um, and and often how well you're doing compared to what others are doing. So you may have a sense of, could we do better? I mean, I, I believe the, the general quality improvement philosophy is we can always do better. Um, so it, it does that. The other thing that measurement can do is focus attention. It gives you a sense of one of the things that is important, just the fact of measurement tends to focus attention. And measurement itself doesn't change anything. It just gives you, it's a feedback loop. It's the opportunity to create a feedback loop that says, is that, do we think that's good enough or could we do better? Incentives then, and, and, and I should say that a lot of the um, early work on, in public reporting was the notion of raising awareness and trying to really inspire people to look at how they could improve in those areas that were being measured. So then incentives really come in to see, uh, to try to provide an additional encouragement for people, um, either a reward or a penalty. So when we talk about incentives, they can either be, I'm gonna give you more money if you do something, or I'm gonna take money away from you or penalize you in some way if you fail to do something. And we've seen both types of incentives used in the US healthcare system to try to encourage people to improve quality. Um, and the incentives, at least the way that they've largely been implemented, tend to be attached to fairly discrete events. So they um, are not broad. And I think what you know, we'll come back to is that there are broader ways to design incentives, but a lot, the use of incentives today has been pretty discreet. It's attached to a specific process measure or it's attached to something like hospital readmission. So it's not, um, it, it's, they're, they're pretty, they're pretty focused. Um, and then social determinants are, are really all of the, the things that affect the way that, affect where people live, work, and play. So it's, it, it, it's things like um, income, employment, housing, stability, uh, food insecurity or food security, depending on whether you're positively or negatively framing. It's the environment. Uh, do you live in an area with, um, significant air pollution that uh, may affect the likelihood that you develop lung disease. Um, so, and, and it is some of the stressors that we have come to acknowledge in the current, in our current times that produce stress. So a lot of the structural racism that we believe causes stress, which itself then has a biologic effect on people's bodies. So all of that other, um, the, the circumstances within which people, you know, live, work, play, et cetera, are those, um, those social factors. Um, and, you know, those will have a significant effect on people's health. And if 
we don't pay attention to them, our ability to get where we'd like to go as a country in terms of longevity and quality of life will be much harder to achieve. Uh, and and that's, that's, I think, a lot of what we're uh, seeing today or becoming more aware of today. So uh, it's very interesting because when we talk about social determinants of health, all of a sudden, the interventions become so big. The problem is so broad. Right. Uh, the question is, is that really a health plan thing? Is that a public health thing? Is that, I mean, who's going to actually drive that? And, and I'm going to give you an opportunity actually to talk a little bit about Kaiser Permanente and what they're doing in terms of housing in, I think it's Northern California. It is Northern California. So we are doing a number of different things to try to invest in housing stability. So we've, we're working collaboratively. I mean, and I would say when you're in the social determinant space, you are always doing this collaboratively. I don't think it's ever a health plan doing it all by itself. Um, but we're, we're working to um, get people in Oakland um, who are either homeless or at risk of homelessness, meaning they're, um, you know, they're uh, quite likely to become homeless, um, stably housed um, with some investments in the housing infrastructure and also in systems that can help stabilize people when their economic circumstances ebb and flow. So it's, it's one specific program um, that, that's being done. And you know, and these are vulnerable, el these are elderly people. I mean, these are people who are um, 65 and older. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you, I think it wouldn't be hard for people to imagine that it would be challenging to be healthy if you're homeless. I mean, that's probably one of the more extreme things that we could, you know, uh, we could take a look at. I mean, what health systems can do and what we're doing as part of an, a, another initiative called Thrive Local is, um, is embedding into the electronic health record some questions about people's um, current housing stability, um, food security, some other questions that have to do with those circumstances that can affect people's ability to affect, to engage with the healthcare system um, in any meaningful way. And then we have worked to identify local social services agencies. So whether that's a food bank or um, a, um, you know, a housing agency or um, a even say a, um, respite care resource or whatever the, the thing is so that we can identify the need, make a direct referral to a provider in the community, another organization in the community that delivers those, that kind of care and, and then actually have a way to find out did the referral, um, was the loop closed, you know, so we get feedback from that provider did, was the person able to be helped. And we've done experiments in, um, in a variety of our regions with these connecting with agencies. So in some ways, the way I look at it is that we are trying to create a more integrated system where the healthcare delivery system is working with the broader kind of social services 
um, agencies and with public health uh, to create a, a web <laughs> that um, ensures that we're taking a much broader view of people's health and trying to connect those dots um, as much as possible. And, and it also has allowed us to take a look at what are the services available in the community and if there's a gap in the availability of those services, are there things that we can do with investments, with um, raising awareness, with bringing others to the table uh, that can uh, fill a gap that may be, um, may be one that exists in the community? So we had an example of that um, related to food security where we um, in a, one of our areas identified the lack of really um, a, a good you know, a, a food bank or another kind of uh, provider to deliver food services and looked at how we could invest to make that kind of service available in the, in the community. So I think it's really sort of taking the um, leadership on of bringing the players together to try to create um, a more integrated system than our fragmented systems today and and you know we talk about the healthcare system being fragmented but all of these other systems equally suffer from fragmentation <laughs> and so i think it's that trying to weave it together absolutely that's why what you talked about is you know in the old days we would just say here's a phone number go call this person right right and, and we would never follow up to see if they actually called them or if they got reasonable information and what you're saying is you're you're building links, but those are two-way links, right? Mm -hmm. So you're trying to make sure that they are accountable for providing the services for which you refer to a, a member to. And exactly. I think that's really important. And I think the other thing you said that's really important is that Kaiser's willing to make an investment. Um, I've, I've had a nonprofit um, in, in the violence prevention area. And, you know, you, you can't really provide services if you can't raise the money. And if you're spending all your time trying to raise the money, and it's usually tiny little things, and they may be tied to specific programs, you can't get the job done. And I think the, the I mean, this is like a theme uh, here, but it's a systems investment. So it, it's, it's not just throwing, you know, bits of money, if you will, at, at one place or another, um, which is a not unusual um, say community benefit strategy, but it's really trying to have it connected to a larger plan and to create infrastructure that might be harder for some of those individual agencies to do themselves um, because they don't have those kinds of resources. So that's, I think that's really the, the, con the idea. So we're back to systemness again, but before yeah. we do talk more about that. I wanted to uh, dive into incentives a little bit because um, for almost my entire career as a physician executive, people have been claiming that the key, the key, not, not just one thing that you could do, but the key was uh, to provide financial incentives. And, and they've aimed those incentives both at doctors. If you do da, 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 you'll get so much extra money, but they've also aimed them at patients right? Programs that right. say, uh, if you do your part, Mr. or Mrs. Patient, then we'll give you some kind of reward, oftentimes just a reduction in your premium. Mm -hmm. um, so do they work? Well, I think the short answer is no. Actually, the right answer is probably it depends. But there has been a fair amount of study of various incentive programs. Um, and, and I refer to some of those in the paper and have done 
um, uh, you know, some additional work that looks at some of the the meta-analyses and, and other efforts to look at, a, you know, a, a whole bunch of different studies that have been done on incentives. And I have to say, it's pretty unimpressive. I mean, we just don't see, you know, big um, uh, boosts from those incentive programs. And I think that the conclusion that a lot of the research has come to is the incentives are too small. Um, often, I, I can remember a study that was published a number of years ago that said, that a physician would get um, more income, this is in, the fee, in a fee-for-service system, if they just stayed, if they just added an hour or two a week to the amount of time they were seeing patients than if they did the work that was required to meet some of the incentives. So the, the incentives have often been, as I said, quite discreet in terms of what they're focused on. So, you know, and I think when you talk about patients, um, I, I think that's maybe that's an even better lens to look at the incentive. So if you tell me I'm going to give you a $200 reduction in your premium if you lose 20 pounds, but I'm not going to tell you anything else. I'm not going to do anything else to help you lose those 20 pounds. I mean, it's like it's on you. The money's enough. You know, I think if that were enough, we could be a thin nation, and we aren't, you know. I mean, I, I, you know, if it was just a matter of throwing a couple hundred dollars at people, um, if they could just shape up and, you know, eat right or exercise or all of the above. So, so I think it's, it's just that the incentives, to me, are, they're actually similar to measurement in that they say, pay attention to this. We think this is important but they may not be adequate for creating the conditions under which you could really do something about that, which is pretty hard work. And for health professionals, you know, for doctors and hospitals and people today, the time and energy that it takes to make those kinds of changes is, is substantial. And we're not giving them any help really to, to do that. We're just sort of waving money at them. Um, and so that's a little bit simplistic, but I'll just say, I think that it, in some ways it's not surprising. And I was early on influenced by taking a, some of the early uh, research that I did was looking at the appropriateness of medical care. And um, in those studies, we didn't see any particular relationship between the um, financing system of a country. So we looked internationally at the UK and at Canada and Israel and Sweden. And in those countries with very different financing systems, we saw really similar issues in quality. And it's because I think quality is not just about the money. I mean, you and I talked earlier about how people believe their doctors are good, smart people, and I believe they're good, smart people. Um, and I don't think, I think that's not really necessarily what motivates them. They didn't, they, they don't show up and do what they do because um, they're not properly incentivized. I mean, I just don't believe that. And so I think that, you know, it should, you know, I mean, if I did, in some ways it feels like that'd be simple. You know, I wish, I wish that was the solution. Um, so I do think it is, it's more complex and, and, most of the work I've done and others have done, it's just the the money thing, while it can help, I think has not been well directed, has not been well thought through, um, and is a little bit unrealistic in terms of how much change somebody can make if you're going to give them an extra pocket change for doing something that requires a 
that may require complex uh, creation of systems or processes that make sure that you do that thing more often or better. Financial incentives aren't the answer. We've wasted a lot of time and a lot of money on financial incentives and they didn't get us, they weren't the magic bullet. Um, do you think there are one or two or three things that you could name that could actually, if we did them, could uh, drive quality right now? And it's fine to say, no, I think it's systems. <laughs> you can say whatever you want. Well, I do, I do think that, um, you know, there are some, I think in some ways, if we could pick one or two things and try to unleash, you know, national creativity. I mean, in some ways, I think um, as scary as the COVID era has been, the unleashing of and the collaboration that's been created among um, scientists and a lot of other people is pretty remarkable. And I feel like a lot of times we don't we don't do enough to tap people's um, creativity um, in, but, but, you know, focused in a couple, in two or three fairly discrete areas. Um, so I think one thing is just to think about whether there are ways that we could, um, and, and this is probably thinking about a time that's a little different than what we're in right now, but, you know, unleash the creativity uh, of people to find ways to achieve some very targeted goals, you know, in, in areas that are important to people's health. And, um, and, and what we've always had a hard time with are taking some of those innovations and spreading them more broadly. And so I think it would need to be done within a, within a framework of, if you have a great idea, what are the next 10 or 50 places that it could, it could be spread to? And, I, I was just on a, a participating in the um, American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation uh, summer forum, where um, some of the funders were talking about creative ways to uh, promote some of those ideas at scale, which all, many of which involved community engagement. So it was it was really to try to bring bring people more broadly um, in the community to achieving. Let's just use the blood pressure control as an example, you know, to really look for ways to do things. Um, so, and, and I do think while I have poo-pooed the incentives in the way that we've done them, I think one of the reasons the Kaiser Permanente has had the successes that it has had is that we have what we call aligned incentives. So that the way in which the medical group um, uh, succeeds and the health plan succeeds is the same. I mean, we it isn't that we're at odds with one another in terms of if both groups do well, both groups do well. It's it's sort of all the same kinds of things. So, and I think that the the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission has been trying to create through, you know, um, some of its recommendations ways to create these um, shared incentives, you know, so that there's more of a sense of alignment. So I do think we need to look at at that, but it may be a more fundamental redesign of the way that we pay for, for care and the way that physicians and health insurance um, become aligned. Um, so I think that's something to um, take a look at. Um, and then, you know, I do think systems are, you know, a key part. And I, you know, there's, I think there's some interesting things that, uh, you know, we haven't really explored, which are things like, um, 
you know, versions of the um, the early agricultural extension services, and 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 there there's been that flavor that's been talked about in the past in terms of trying to um, build out systems um, in uh, physician practices that aren't part of large systems, um, but to use some of that, um, uh, you know, I don't think every physicians should have to create that themselves or even every medical group, that there ought to be ways that we can, um, we can deploy knowledge that has been garnered already in existing systems to uh, facilitate bringing other uh, individuals and systems on board with things that work and that are known to work. Like, I don't think we have to keep reinventing some of these wheels. So, the, I mean, I think there's something there, I think, in the trying to deploy it more broadly through um, technical assistance, through making systems available, um, maybe through some, um, you know, in say government and government um, investments, so rather than incentives, investments that are that are targeted. So that's very interesting. And, and I myself have been involved in some of those projects to try and help independent physicians get looped together and, and act more like a system. We've been doing a lot of this stuff for a very long time. And um, the needle is moving in some places and it hasn't moved at all in others. So I wanted to close by just asking you, given the state of our terribly fragmented system, given the new understanding that some of the most important impacts on health really lie in this realm of social determinants of health. Um, and given that our, in my opinion, public health system has been not only underfunded, but what funding they got has been focused on managing Medicaid as opposed to doing real public health systems. Um, what do you think is the outlook for getting any of these things done um, you know, that you described, because uh, to, to move people from the status quo into something else could take, you know, more than our lifetimes or more than somebody <laughs> else's lifetime. Um, right. Just talk to us about um, how you see the future and, and how you see us going from here to there. Well, I, I do think, I mean, I would like to sort of leave this on an optimistic note because I sort of feel like um, without optimism, we'll all just sort of go back to bed and pull the covers over our head. But I mean, I do think that we have an opportunity right now because of the shared public awareness of um, a lot of factors that contribute to poor health. So to me, the COVID-19 experience has been a sort of national teach-in on the problems in healthcare that a lot of us know, but has not been this shared national experience. And so I think there is an opportunity to say, to build on that and to have a broader focus on improving the health of America, um, something that I think everybody really should be in favor of. And to, raise the importance of public health, raise the importance of social services, quite frankly, in that, and then the role the healthcare system can play, and to find ways through leadership to bring those pieces together and to, you know, to, I think, improve the standing of public health, to really understand how critically important it is to the health of the nation. 
And, you know, and to me, it's to, it's to reinvest and to invest in a way that we haven't for a long time in that infrastructure. And, and frankly, also to, um, you know, I, I am distraught at um, the number of public health directors that have resigned because they have been, you know, attacked and have been, um, you know, have had their families subjected to um, attack. And so I think we have to really um, raise up the positive profile of public health. Um, and, you know, that takes leadership, it takes investment. Um, and I think that the healthcare sector should be a part of leading the way towards demanding those kinds of investments because we need each other. I mean, the health system cannot by itself solve these problems. The public health system by itself can't solve these problems. Social services can't solve these problems, but together we can make you know, tremendous advances. And I think it's really just a matter of finding ways to begin bringing those systems together. I think we'll all be more effective and efficient if we can find ways to not be operating in our own little silos, but can weave together um, you know, effective infrastructure that enables us to, and a lot of this is really to provide um, the conditions under which it is possible for people to have the health that they want to have, do you know? And so this is, to me, this is about enabling and partnering and getting, knocking down barriers to healthy living for people. Because I, I think that, that people do want that for themselves and for their loved ones, but we don't do a lot to make that, um, that easy. I mean, one of the, um, one of the phrases that we use in Kaiser Permanente is make the right thing easy to do. And that's kind of, that's the essence of um, the quality improvement philosophy is, and I think we should make health the easy thing to do, do you know? And, and, and so then let's unleash the creativity. Let's, let's garner the, the moment that we have right now in terms of a much broader public understanding of where the cracks in our infrastructure are and and let's see what's possible and you know maybe it's having some grand challenges there that inspire people you know much as uh, you know putting a man on the moon did um to to try to come together and find solutions that we then you know share with one another um so i mean i'm i am hopeful um and it won't be easy, but I think it's possible. And I think, and I do think we have an opportunity right now to, you know, seize the day and, and to, to move forward. Well, I absolutely agree. Uh, COVID has um, changed a lot of things about healthcare, uh, our perceptions of healthcare, and maybe our willingness to do something. So as horrible as it is, maybe some good things will come out of it. I wanna thank you, Beth, for an amazing wide-ranging discussion of the issues and for you putting on the table things that I don't think most people have, have thought about. So thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for the opportunity. It was great to have this chance to talk to you. To get in touch with us, you can email info at ajmc.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and